Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you and welcome back. Well, thank you, Stephen. I know you said as always, but but I really appreciate you and Michael stepping in and taking care of things while I was actually traveling last week. I want you to know, Mitch, that I broadcast the fact that you were away on official business. <laughs> it was true. It was true. I was up representing the law school uh, in, actually, I said up. I was down in Los Angeles representing the law school on a series of meetings with the state bar on issues related to accreditation and regulation. Getting in some road work. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. But I'm glad to be back. Good, good. Glad to have you back. So, hey, let me give you the honors of setting the, the topic for today. Well, it will not surprise everyone that, that the big issue this last week has been on sexual harassment. And the focus has been on sexual harassment in the entertainment business. Obviously, the Harvey Weinstein case has been uh, in the headlines and discussed at great depth. But I thought it would be valuable, Stephen, for us to talk about it, not just in the headline-grabbing world of media and movies, but to make sure that everyone knows that, that these are issues that are equally important in everyday workplaces, no matter where you're working. And then secondarily, that the issue of... You know, impermissible sexual touching and harassment and assault is not just an issue of workplace behavior and possible civil lawsuits, but that in some circumstances it crosses the line and is a crime. And, and I wanted you to be able to talk about that some as well. Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And you know what's interesting about sexual harassment type cases is in, in many ways, in my opinion, it's kind of a sad commentary, is the fact that cases like Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein, and I guess we're finding out that Brother Bob may have also been engaged in some inappropriate conduct also. You know, these cases that involve so-called celebrities get all the attention, but the reality is that uh, it is uh, a widespread problem. And as you indicated, uh, there is a connection between criminal and civil, and in many cases, workplace sexual harassment can rise to the level of a criminal act, uh, depending upon whether it meets elements of certain crimes. Uh, so there's a host of issues to discuss. There's some um, crossover issues between civil and criminal, uh, and very discussable issues that are, uh, I think, crying out for attention. You know, one thing I can say, Mitch, about California, um, and it's really 
uh, mostly considered an outgrowth from the Bill Cosby case, which I think our listeners would probably know that that trial ended in a mistrial, and it's going to be retried in April of next year. Uh, Many of the victims in that case fell outside of the statute of limitations. And And talk a little about, I know you're going to get there, but why statute of limitations come into play in these, finish your thought, but let's let's talk about why that, because that's, that actually would come into play in some of the Harvey Weinstein claims that were 20, 30 years old. So that does become a legal issue as well, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. So, in a general sense, the statute of limitations is a rule that prevents prosecution after the passage of a considerable amount of time. And in most jurisdictions, uh, there is a 10 year or was a 10 year statute of limitations for serious sex crimes, meaning that uh, the complaining party. Uh, if the complaining party came forward after the 10-year period and the prosecuting agency wished to proceed with charges, they are faced with a conundrum, a problem, uh, meaning that it falls or potentially falls outside the statute of limitations, which means that the prosecution would not be viable after a 10-year period. Uh, what, What has happened in California, um, by virtue of Senate Bill 813, which uh, was uh, signed by the governor, I believe in June of this year, uh, is that there's no longer a statute of limitations on serious sex offenses. And so that goes to the criminal issue, but it doesn't limit the time if someone wishes to bring a civil suit. Is that right? Yeah, that That's true. That's true. So in, in the civil setting with a sexual harassment type claim, uh, there is an opportunity to still pursue the case without the rigors of statute of limitations. So it's, it's a little complicated in the sense that along with other things we've talked about uh, this show, there's sometimes behavior and activities that the same behavior and activity could trigger two different legal issues, one being on the civil side, but the same exact incident could be triggering a crime as well, right? We've talked about that before. And yeah. so, so that, that's why it's, we're going to try to talk about it without complicating it more, but it's important to remember that there, there, those are two different legal avenues for redress. One is the individual versus the individual in a civil case and the and the what you receive if you're if you find that you've been uh, damaged in a civil case is money right you don't go to jail over a civil case on the criminal side it's the state bringing a a case against a perpetrator or an alleged perpetrator because of the violation of a specific criminal statute, and then that statute will tell you what the possible uh, repercussions would be. Yeah, that's accurate, Mitch. And what usually happens is the criminal case would be brought first, and very often a civil suit follows that. I mean, that's a, a typical order, because if the prosecution does, in fact, file charges 
against the suspect, who would, of course, then be a defendant, that case, that matter is adjudicated first. And what very often happens is if a civil case follows the criminal case, the civil uh, attorneys, the litigants in the civil case representing the plaintiff, would utilize the evidence from the criminal case in an effort to bolster the strength of the civil case. So the typical cadence is criminal action first, if in fact there's evidence to support it, very often followed by civil. But, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, very often these matters are only civil because they don't necessarily rise to the level of a crime. And in in the case of Weinstein, we're going to see a lot of interesting issues, including one that I think you mentioned in our preparation, that being the non-disclosure agreement and whether that has any teeth so as to prevent a complaining party. So let's talk a little about the framework of, I guess let's talk civil first, and then we'll come back and talk about what rises to the level of a crime. And and you, you framed it exactly the right way. The, this is not a new issue, and it's not something that hasn't been in the public. It hasn't been around for age eternal. Uh, it's a social issue, and I don't say that in any way to diminish the importance of it or the repugnance of it. <clears throat> but the but what we see and I think what we're feeling is a level of frustration by everyone, but particularly by women, that the, the legal system, both civil and criminal, has has there's a sense that it's been completely inadequate to deal with the issue. And I've been thinking a lot about that as we got ready for today's show, because because the laws themselves are relatively clear. It's, it's not an issue that they're not written correctly. It's, it's a question, and that's why I raised the, the point of a social issue, of at what point are we as a society, are we as employers, as we as co-workers, as managers, uh, are we going to step up and say, you know, we wouldn't stand by and watch a physical assault, someone beating a co-worker in front of us, and yet there appears to be a long history of us having a broad range of acceptability of watching what appears to clearly violate uh, workplace harassment laws and workplace harassment standards. Yeah, you know, Mitch, in the, in the business sector and keeping with the theme of focusing on civil, you know, one good source for information is human resources and the department. A human resources department in most businesses now are acutely aware of sexual harassment policies and the need to have policies in place in their businesses, placing employees on notice of conduct that could rise to the level of sexual harassment. So the trend, which is without question, in my opinion, uh, a sound policy, is to place everyone on notice of certain terms. And most employees in private sector are required to sign and acknowledge some kind of a document that sets out the sexual harassment policy in, in the office. That's right. And this, uh, most states have state, there's both state and federal laws about this that require employers of certain size 
Uh, different states will have different standards of how large the company must be, usually measured by number of employees. And if it's over a certain number of employees, then they are required by state law and then in some cases by federal law to not only have the policies in place, but to do actively do training of all employees. And then, as you pointed out, to have each employee acknowledged by signing a statement that they have been through the policy and have that placed in their employment folder. And then corporations are required to renew and repeat that in fixed periods of time. So I think the first takeaway, Stephen, is, is the, a great one that you pointed out, is that are you in a, if, if you are working for a company, the question is, does the company have that policy in place? Have you been made aware of it? Are you clear that the company as a whole has fulfilled their requirements under the state and federal law? And that's a perfectly reasonable request to make to Human Resources Department. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. And if we look at it from the perspective of the business owner, there's obvious liability concerns lurking. So it's a sound policy to to have a protocol in place uh, because ultimately if there is a lawsuit uh, brought by an employee who's claiming that he or she was harassed in the workplace, um, where will the uh, parties look first? They'll look to see if there's a policy in place. And it's good business to keep a policy in place. So, you know, in many ways, it's a means of uh, protecting protecting the business by having that policy. And here's one of the, I guess, the for the current employee, that what we've just described is the framework of protection. The before we leave that, it, what we're learning, and and I guess what's the most challenging and and in some cases frustrating part of this is that there's a a fear factor of even reporting it. So even if all these protections are in place, nothing happens unless there's a report. And that's where it becomes very challenging and difficult because the individual who already feels like they've been victimized has to be willing and to, to, no, no, and, just has to be willing to take advantage of the protections within the workplace and report it. Because yeah, absolutely. None of the rest of this happens. And and that's what makes it so terribly frustrating. And then you hear of dozens, if not hundreds of cases, but without the reporting, the legal protections don't step up. Yeah, let's expand on that topic, Mitch, when we come back, because the fear factor and delayed reporting is a major concern in the civil and the criminal setting. So that's a good one to take back on when we come back from the break um, and we can expand upon the issue of um, victimology a little bit and expectations and perhaps even expert testimony that sometimes arises. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Don't go away. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. 
established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our topic today is sexual harassment, and we're talking about sexual harassment within the civil context, which really means it happens in the private sector. Um, Of course, there's some crossover issues relating to criminal acts, uh, conduct that could rise to the level of criminal activity, and before the break, um, Mitch had brought up. Mitch, you brought up the idea of the what you called the fear factor, and I just wanted to expand upon that. One of the uh, major, major problems that are associated with any kind of sexual harassment is the issue of the willingness of the victim or the complaining party to actually come forward, and it's one of those very, very challenging issues that relates to both civil and criminal cases. And what I wanted to say about the fear factor, Mitch, is that it's not uncommon at all for a victim to delay before reporting. Things like repressed memory 
or the stifling effect that's faced, uh, that a victim may face, that could rise to an unwillingness to report something in a so-called timely fashion. And in our courts, in both civil and criminal, uh, there is often expert testimony offered on the topic of so-called delayed reporting or even repressed memory, where a victim in, in, of a serious sexual assault may engage in uh, efforts to just block the memory and not talk about it for a lot of valid reasons. And it's not uncommon at all for uh, the, the victim to come forward well, well past the date of the actual uh, bad act. So I guess the point here is that that even if you've been a victim of sexual harassment or sexual assault, it still is important to report it. That for whatever reason, uh, as you've said, very valid reasons from humiliation to shame to, to blaming to fear to all of these things we're hearing about uh, very actively most recently in the news, uh, but that clearly are not new factors, but that the, the issue is you shouldn't keep on top of that the concern that because you didn't report it immediately, you no longer have a right or the protection of the civil and or criminal law. So the, the real answer is that the encouragement is take advantage of the legal protections, take advantage of the workplace protections if it exceeds a certain type of behavior that we'll talk about in a second, take advantage of the opportunity to report it as a crime, and then let the, the laws, the civil and criminal laws, protect you. But, but without the reporting, it, it doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. I mean, see something, say something uh, is, has got to be the, the mantra for sure. You know, and in the civil, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that, Stephen, cause you know, I, I'd gone off on that one tangent and I, you, you brought me back to something I wanted to make sure we said, which is the see something, say something. It's not just the victim. It's, it's the witnesses, isn't it? It's absolutely. That's that see it and don't report it as well. Absolutely. And that's why I shared it, Mitch, you know, in the civil arena, cause we wanted to focus on that a little bit more cause you were going to offer some examples of things that qualify as sexual harassment, uh, you know, the, the, one of the main challenges uh, and unfortunate aspects is the fear of retaliation, you know, in the private sector. There's no doubt that there's empirical data to support that people don't come forward because they feared retaliation. So that's, let's talk a little about the, the behavior that gets included. And uh, let me break this civil side into two parts. Uh, one has been dealt with more broadly by the courts, which is really workplace harassment uh, in a more public setting. And, and what have the courts look like, looked at on things like that? Uh, that could be uh, you know, posters on the wall, uh, poor, uh, jokes within the public setting, discussions in group, uh, a, a supervisor telling uh, sexual jokes or inappropriate jokes. It, it could be public touching and all of that, but, but it can just be the environment, uh, uh, what they consider a hostile work environment. Those cases have been before the courts, and the courts have defined uh, with some specificity what does or doesn't count as sexual harassment in the workplace in those settings. And they do talk about context. 
that there is, and again, this is why it's, it's very challenging on this, but on one hand, the repeated telling of lewd and sexual nature jokes in a workplace setting by a manager or other workers that, that make others uncomfortable can be workplace harassment, even though they're not directed to one specific person. So the, the rules say that you're not required to work in a kind of an environment. But the standard for that rises pretty high. It can't be just once. It has to be, they really focus on the environment. They talk about it being pervasive, happening over and over again, sometimes escalating. And so in a group setting, I think it's fair to say there's a, a little higher standard. One inappropriate joke, one inappropriate story is probably not going to qualify under this category of, of a hostile workforce. But the important lesson is it can qualify if it's pervasive. It happens over and over again. It happens by multiple parties. And then there's no effort by management or supervisors to restrict and stop. Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And if you look at some of the cases, and I've reviewed some of the cases where the theory of the victim or the complaining party has been uh, that form of sexual harassment, so lewd sexual-based conduct or comments, um, one of the focal points there is, is there evidence that it's been condoned or fostered or did it reach the corner office, so to speak? In other words, was management on notice? And that relates to your pervasive issue. So cases have absolutely looked at that issue. Yeah, and they, they use words like serious and repeated. And so the, so that's that gives someone a standard. But again, the critical element is that reporting it to management, reporting it to human resources is the first step on that. It's, it's not required that the individual confront the storyteller necessarily. It's not, a, it's not important for them to stand up in front of the whole room and say, these jokes are inappropriate or those posters are inappropriate. The, the appropriate step is to go to management human resources and allow the rules to protect you. Because it also gives you a little more protection of that fear factor that you talked about, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. So the other is is much more difficult and no less uh, inappropriate, but it's when two individuals behind a closed door uh, have a different opinion of what happened in an incident. And that's that's obviously most difficult because it's a he said, she said. Uh, could could be same sex. That's not it's not required to be male female interaction, but the the difficulty there is one person says this is what happened. There are no witnesses, and the other person said they just made it up. I don't know what they're talking about. So so that goes to the point of it. it it's harder to make that type of a report, but I would still say. Making that report is critical because then even if the first time it's reported, even though it was just as wrong the very first time it happened, if you report it the first time and then somebody else reports it, someone else reports it, you then have the type of circumstantial evidence that begins to be much more effective both in a civil and a criminal case, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that, Mitch, and that just speaks to the issue of being vigilant about reporting. Uh, you know, your reference to he said, she said is uh, 
it's a common issue. Um, these things happen behind closed doors. And I say these things, I'm referencing sexual harassment or workplace harassment in the civil sector and, frankly, um, conduct that could rise to a criminal uh, charge. There very often are no witnesses. Um, in fact, most perpetrators um, commit these acts in settings where there are no witnesses. That's part of the MO, if you will, of some of the crimes. So it's a reality that in many cases, in criminal cases, there simply are no third party or independent witnesses. So we look, I say we as a prosecutor, we would look for corroboration. In other words, additional evidence to somehow support the strength of one of the um, renditions of the events. In other words, the victim's rendition. Um, and very often there is no corroboration. So same thing can happen in the civil sector, right, Mitch? You know, behind closed doors. It's exactly right. So let's talk about the types of things, that the broad categories, um, unwanted touching. And, and the courts have looked at what, what are the barriers of that. And what's interesting is the same touch might be innocent in one setting, but is absolutely a violation of sexual harassment in another setting. And it could be repeated touching, for example, on the shoulder or a pat on the back. It doesn't have to be a groping type of a touching, uh, but that the repeated unwanted touching can be a violation of workplace harassment. Uh, sexually derogatory comments, not just directed at one person, but in general, uh, can fit the category of sexual harassment. Um, you cannot obviously condition employment on uh, sexual acts or sexual promises. Uh, in addition, uh, the category really is unwanted. And so the I, I focus on that because it goes back to the reporting part that that although storytelling or joking that might have been allowed in one setting, if indeed there is no one there, although one would question how one would know that, but no one there who finds it offensive may, in that very limited setting, not be a harassment claim. But if anyone in that workplace setting finds that as an, a harassment, unwanted storytelling, joking, posters, they need to report it because that changes the nature right there. Yeah, you know, Mitch, and I can tell you that the, the net may be even cast a little wider than that in the civil setting. Uh, the target victim of an unwanted touching scenario is obviously going to be um, a potential victim. Uh, however, those who witness that may also bring a viable complaint that it made them uncomfortable in the workplace setting. So yeah, that's a great point. Great point. You no, know, that is a great point. And, and let me add one other nuance to this because – Although we talk about it being sexual harassment, the courts have been clear that a sexual motive is not required. So it's an unwanted touching. That's the part I think we should focus on. And as I said, it's been found that somebody who was repeatedly, it could be shoulder slaps, back rubbing, uh, thing, you know, hip bumps, uh, things that the, the person doing the touching may not have had a sexual meaning, 
but it's the recipient who believes that they're being harassed. They're, they're not required to suffer through unwanted touching. And that's that's the key part in this in the civil side. Yeah, you know, Mitch, and there's some harmony there in the criminal laws and what I think of as assault and battery. So, you know, battery is an offensive touching. Um, an assault is a, a crime that puts the victim in fear of, uh, of, of a touching, creating apprehension. So you're right to focus on the actual recipient or the victim's belief in, in uh, what the gesture really meant. So it's a good point, and there's some crossover there between civil and criminal. And I guess I'd circle back around as we get ready to take this break. The, the key is, and you've said it a number of times, in the employment setting, the burden is on the employer, and that's the employer as far as the owner, it's the managers, it's the supervisors, it's the co-workers. It, it really is, it falls on everyone to be aware of the rules, to communicate the rules, and if you're in the employment hierarchy, to make sure that you've done the necessary training that, that fits the state and federal laws. Yeah, and then that can dovetail into a topic and a discussion about a safe workplace environment. We can expand upon that. And then uh, I think, Mitch, you wanted to talk about non-disclosure agreements and whether or not those can actually be used to enforce or somehow prevent claims. So Absolutely. Let's hit that when we come back uh, from the break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Our topic today is sexual harassment within the workplace, and we've also talked about the criminal acts associated with sexual-related crimes. We'll be right back after this short break. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. 
That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we've been talking about sexual harassment. We've talked about it within the civil or workplace context, and we've also talked about some of the criminal uh, aspects of sexual harassment. And before we went out on the break, we were going to weave into the discussion of what are called non-disclosure agreements. And Mitch, I think we wanted to do that within the context of the private sector and to look at the issue of uh, the scenario where an employee may be required to sign what's called a non-disclosure agreement. And that agreement may have language in it that could potentially stifle uh, a sexual harassment victim's uh, rights. I say could because I think there's going to be some exceptions, of course. Yeah, I find this really problematic, Stephen. And I say that problematic from from a, a legal analysis standpoint. So, so let me just set this, put the setting up here. Uh, you go to work, you, you apply to work at a company. You start. You, you're one of the first things you do is is there may be an employee manual that you're handed, and you have to sign that you've reviewed it. There's hopefully going to be a sexual harassment policy that you've reviewed, and you sign that you've. Re- reviewed that. And then in some cases, embedded within an employment agreement is what we call an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. And that has historically been upheld by the courts, that employers are allowed to protect their assets. Uh, It could be intellectual property. It could be uh, proprietary product knowledge. I mean, that's the origin of NDAs which is a non-disclosure agreement that says you agree to receive certain benefits. It could be employment, it could be a payment. Uh, if, you do, if you promise to not uh, talk about or, or discuss anything related to the corporation. Right. And, you know, Mitch, I'm glad you're setting up the traditional NDA because I think most people do think about it in terms of protecting ideas. So one, a classic example would be um, a member of a business enterprise separates from that business enterprise and then goes on to use ideas that he gleaned from the former employer. There could very well be prohibitions. And that's an arm's length transaction. And quite frankly, it is very commonplace. Let's just use Silicon Valley as a great example. That's exactly right. And it can include things like uh, not only who works for a company, but it could be in a sales setting uh, who your customers are. 
So a, a really valuable thing is a customer list. Sure. So you're a salesperson for one company, you, you, you're either terminated or you quit. A, a typical NDA would say you cannot take your customer list with you. That's proprietary. I don't have any trouble with those things. That's an arm's length transaction. They make perfectly good sense. The problem I have, Stephen, is that there have been circumstances in which the NDAs are are drafted so broadly that the company then says, well, it also prohibits you from discussing uh, a harassment, a, a hostile workplace, or any of those type of issues we've just been talking about. Let's say you decide, you complain to HR and they say, well, it's a he said, she said, we will give you $10,000 if you agree to quit and you now sign an additional NDA that in no way will you discuss what happened here. And it's, it's done in, in lieu of resolving a dispute. It's a, again, a quid pro quo. I'll give you $10,000, but you must give back the promise that you will never talk about this to anyone, including law enforcement, the EEOC, or any of the other reporting agencies. You know, Stephen, that's where I think it gets very gray on whether or not you can contract to prohibit someone from uh, using their legal rights or taking advantage of their legal rights. And I think you probably would join with me on, on the one end of the spectrum. You can't contract with somebody to cover up a crime, right? So at right. that end of the spectrum, it doesn't work. So, so if you're talking about an actual sexual assault or a sexual crime, even if you sign that NDA, that doesn't prohibit you from reporting that to the police, correct? That is correct. And that, and that Mitch, is just a straight-up public policy kind of rationale. Um, efforts to contract or to prevent, in the form of a contract, someone's rights to pursue a civil suit or to be a complaining party to a police agency is a rogue violation of public policy. And the challenge with that is it requires a court to make that determination. And that's where I find that a bit frustrating because that's a, a level of effort and resources and, and lawyers that can be very difficult to sustain and you have no idea what the court's going to decide. It's not as black and white as your protections under the criminal law. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure how you resolve this other than I guess I would throw out a couple of suggestions. Number one, in the employment setting, before you go to work for a company, you should carefully read all of those employment policies to make sure that there's not a type of non-disclosure agreement in there that you think would would give away your rights uh, because the that's that's step one and if you have doubts about that and I know it always sounds like we're promoting go hire a lawyer but most of us have no idea whether a, a document has gone beyond the legal limits of whether courts have ruled against the use of that type of document. So I think if you have doubts about an NDA that's involved in an employment setting, 
it's very valuable for you to seek out a lawyer and get some advice. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Mitch. And one thing you know that I should share is that a confidentiality clause in an employment agreement is by no means a novel issue. I mean, they've been a base fixture in our business enterprises for years and years. That's not uncommon. The issue we're talking about here is overreaching in terms of uh, efforts to stifle or prohibit an employee from pursuing um, their rights. That's the main issue or the thrust of uh, a point I wanted to get out. And, and let me go one step further. So the, the I've seen where uh, there are cases that claim that the NDA uh, theoretically prohibits an employee from even reporting to management. Or let's say you work for the branch of a company and the, the question is, does the NDA or confidentiality agreement prohibit you from calling human resources at the main office? Now, in those two cases, I can answer very clearly, no. An NDA, a confidentiality agreement, cannot be used to prohibit you from taking advantage of the internal protections and policies of a corporation. You're absolutely still allowed to report up to management, report to the home office, to take advantage of the protections that are in place. Right, correct. And then as I indicated before, an NDA cannot prevent an employee from complaining to law enforcement about crimes such as rape, sexual assault. That's exactly right. And so then the question becomes, let's say somebody else files a lawsuit and you are contacted as a former employee, and they say, we would like you to be a witness in our civil case because we believe that you were the witness to behavior that is now being challenged in a civil case. The question is, does an NDA cover you for that type of a setting? And Stephen, let me just ask you, so does it make a difference whether it's a general NDA or confidentiality agreement that was embedded with an employment contract or whether it was a separate one where you receive specific payment to sign an NDA? Do you think that makes any difference whatsoever? Um, God, that's an interesting question. So you're framing the issue of uh, putting the focus on a potential witness to an act of sexual harassment right. or workplace harassment? Yes. Yeah, I, I don't think, I think the same policies apply with respect to attempts to prohibit a witness from coming forward. So I, I think you'd look to the original document in that scenario also. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and it would, the, you'd still have to look at what is the scope of the agreement. So the, the, the ones, the, the, Agreements we're seeing discussed in the press right now that have been challenged have been really the second type where you personally had an incident, you've reported it, you come to a legal agreement between parties. Generally speaking, the person you're complaining against does not admit that they've done anything. So there's no admission of guilt or admission of wrongdoing in a civil case. But in order for it not to be pursued legally, you say, I will accept a dollar compensation and promise that for receipt of that dollar compensation, I will not subsequently discuss this with anyone. So that's the, that's the type of agreements we're, we're reading about in sexual harassment claims where 
right. individual went to the corporation or went to the individual and there was a legal settlement. And even in those cases, Stephen, I think the courts are now starting to reconsider whether those are binding agreements. Yeah, they are, Mitch. And, you know, one central theme here is the idea of a contract being manifestly, manifestly unfair to one side. And you'll recall in contracts class, contracts of adhesion. In other words, they are so patently unfair to one side if that is the case, that is often the spirit behind the argument to challenge the efficacy of the agreement and the, and the terms of the agreement. So from the public policy standpoint, what we, th- what we see are courts are starting to look at what you've talked about, the balance of power. And if it appears that it wasn't, it, and I know it seems odd that we're talking about this in contract terms, but, but in this kind of a setting, that's exactly what an NDA agreement is. It's a contract between two parties. We will give you money, you will give us silence. Or you, we will give you money and you give us the promise of silence. And on the face of it, that is a binding contract. But as you've talked about, a contract of adhesion is where one side has disproportionate power over the other and it doesn't look like they really had a choice. Right, and I think the courts are really tuned in on that issue as I looked at some of the cases that review NDAs within that context. And, it, and, and I think that if, if you're out there listening or if you know of someone who's concerned about whether they signed an NDA that's, that's binding, uh, you know, there are other factors that they should consider. Were there other uh, real or implied threats? So if you don't sign this, we're not going to give you a letter of reference for your next job and you will not be able to work or be employed. I mean, almost anything that moves down that list of an additional threat either actual or implied, is going to balance in favor of the public policy that says that's not a binding agreement and you should be allowed to talk about this incident. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You know, Mitch, and you did offer some sage advice, and that is take time to read everything and recall and remember that you do have the right to have independent review of materials. So in the spirit of, like, I guess, offering general advice, that is certainly uh, sound. And I guess I'd close on the point to say that as we always say, you should always have these things reviewed in advance whenever possible. But in these type of settings, what we're also saying is it's not a bad idea to have them reviewed after the fact. Even if you've done it before, didn't have legal counsel then, it's still okay to ask a lawyer now of whether those are still binding agreements. Absolutely. Yep. Good show, Mitch. Well, thank you, Stephen. As always, you've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can hear an archive of today's program on voiceamerica.com business channel and Wagner and Winnick on the Law. As we suggest to you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com.